Well, good morning again. As Rick referenced in his prayer, our lead pastor, John, and his family have been on sabbatical for the last month. So you've gotten to see lots of different faces up here and hear the word from lots of different people. We'll get to hear from Dustin next week, which I'm really excited for. But John and Laura will actually be back next Sunday as well. And in this last week, as they're preparing to return home and to rejoin us, I would encourage you to keep praying for them. If you've ever spent an extended period of time in silence or by yourself and then rejoined other people, it can be kind of jarring. So I would encourage you just to pray for their transition and that the Lord would help them to be able to maintain that posture of rest that they've been in. And they do so much for this community. They've been deeply invested here for so long. And so let's just continue to cover them in prayer as they prepare to come back this week. We've been in the lectionary text of the Gospel of Matthew, and we are there again today. And as we join up with Jesus and his disciples, we find ourselves after the feeding of the 5,000, after Jesus walking on water, and most recently, after Jesus challenges what everybody knows to be the qualifiers of what makes something clean or unclean. So he's just had some teaching that they left a little confused Maybe Jesus is doing a new thing here, and they're not quite sure. But today, there's another miracle in our story. And interestingly enough, the miracle happens somewhere off stage. The miracle is an exorcism, which means that a young woman is healed of demon possession. And that miracle is surely a powerful one. But the story doesn't show us the miracle. Actually, the people living during this episode. Don't even see the miracle happen. The young woman is not in their midst when she is healed. We are simply told by the story that she is healed the very moment that Jesus says it is so. So we have to notice today that though this miracle must have been a great show of God's power, it's not for some reason the focus of this passage. Matthew, writing this gospel, made a lot of intentional choices. That was one of them. He chose not to focus on the miracle itself, but on the exchange between Jesus and the young woman's mother. Why? There must be some wisdom for us today in the words of this woman. And indeed, there is. The way Matthew has structured the story is an invitation for us to lean in and listen. But there's also a bunch of cultural noise in the way. Before we can really hear what this woman has to teach us, we've got to do some peeling back of our own discomfort and of the elements in this story that just feel kind of wrong to us from where we sit in our 21st century cultural seats. So we're going to do that today. We're going to peel back some of the distance, and we're going to see that this woman was meant to be heard, and then we're going to listen closely to what she has to say. And I'll warn you, Jesus is... He's saying some things that sound really harsh this week. He is going to be just very clear and harsh and blunt, and we are going to hear it together, and we're going to address it. And I just want to say, for those of us in the room, there's more than a handful, I'm sure, who have grown up as women in the church. Sometimes, especially in that environment, it can be easy to feel dismissed or looked down upon. And Jesus is talking to a woman when he talks the way that feels very uncomfortable to us. So that could be triggering for some of us. And I just want you to know that as we peel back those layers, as we look at that context, Jesus is actually holding this woman up as a role model. 
So we're going to peel back that distance, and we're going to deal with that discomfort, and we're going to see what it is she has to teach us. So let's listen to the passage together. This is Matthew 15, 21 through 28. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So did you catch it? The kind of icky parts of Jesus' response? (laughs) First, he ignores her. It says he didn't respond a word. Well, that's the fancy storytelling way of saying he ignored her. Like, just straight up didn't respond. And then when he does respond, we almost wish he hadn't. Because what he says just sounds so bad. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? Yeah. So all we can do is greet our discomfort head on and figure out what's really going on here and deal with the messy cultural dimension of what has just unfolded. And I'll tell you our first clue to why this exchange is so charged is the label applied to the woman. She is called a Canaanite woman. And this designation is an invitation for us to think back on the long and difficult history of Israel. Does Canaan ring a bell for anyone? Yes, that was the land promised to Israel by God, promised to be the possession of Abraham's family. And it was a possession that didn't come until 400 years of slavery in Egypt and 40 years of wandering in the desert and lots of really ugly skirmishes with all these little nation tribes. There were people who practiced pagan worship. There were pagan peoples filled in the land of Canaan until the people of Israel came along. And God partnered with the army of Israel to drive those people out so that it became the land that belonged to the people of Israel instead of the land of Canaan. Well, as you can imagine, the relations between Israelites and Canaanites were kind of strained from the beginning because that's how it all started, right? There was hostility and there was violence in the midst of those relations. And so if you remember just a little bit back to the sermon series John preached on Romans, he noted how in Romans, Paul talks about Jews and how they think about the world in two categories. There's Jewish people, and then there's literally everybody else. Those are Gentiles. Well, the Canaanites are the OG. They're the original Gentiles. All the bad blood starts there in the land of Canaan, okay? So it's a long history. It's an ugly history. There is a lot of prejudice and hostility there. So when Matthew introduces this woman to us in the story this way, he does it to tell us she's a Gentile, 
but more than that, to tell us that there's a lot of hostility and a lot of social prejudice wrapped up in that. And in fact, Canaanite is an old distinction by the time of Jesus' ministry. Biblical scholar Marilyn Salmon says, there were no Canaanites living in the first century. So the label does not describe present-day encounters. The label evokes historical conflicts and thus defines the woman in terms of age-old prejudices a first-century Jewish audience would understand. So she's not necessarily from Canaan. It's not what it means when he calls her a Canaanite. It means she shows up on the scene and she brings all that baggage with her. That's the mindset we're supposed to be in when we meet this woman in this story. So because of who she is and all she represents, Jesus' first response to her, or his lack of response, is really the socially expected response of a Jew to a Gentile, right? This is something that would not have surprised Jesus' disciples or his Jewish followers. At the moment, Jesus is acting the way any of them would act. He's being one of the Jews in this situation. So I can't help but remember again back to Romans. Y'all, we're connecting it all. It's fun when it overlaps. And John told us about a rhetorical device that Paul uses in the first two chapters of Romans. In Romans 1, he lists out all of the normal complaints about Gentiles and how terribly sinful they are so that his Jewish listeners are nodding along. They're tracking with him. They feel their own righteousness just in time for Paul to yank the rug out from underneath them in chapter 2 when he says, oh, wait, you're probably more guilty of sitting in judgment and also very sinful. I have to wonder if Jesus approaching the woman this way initially serves a very similar purpose. As he ignores her, I imagine the disciples and the other Jewish followers are nodding along. This is right. They're leaning in close, feeling like Jesus is on their team. And for the moment, it looks like he is. But they push it even further. They aren't just happy enough with Jesus ignoring her. The disciples, bolstered by their generations of hostility and social prejudice, actually tell Jesus he ought to just send the woman away. Ignoring her is not enough. She's bothering them, and I'm sure that the disciples think Jesus is not able to do the real work that he is supposed to be doing because this woman is in the way. He doesn't send her away. In fact, Jesus still hasn't even turned to respond to the woman at this point. The next thing he says is to his disciples. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Seems kind of like that comes out of nowhere. But he says it to the disciples, sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And we recognize in these words that Jesus is confirming his own mission statement. What is his purpose? Well, his time on earth has been set aside to minister to the people of Israel. Remember who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. That is a Jewish term. That is a Jewish promise. Jesus has come to be God's own provision for God's people who are desperately lost so that God can be faithful to his promise and save them. That's Jesus' main role when he shows up on the scene. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see Gentiles breaking into the story. Gentiles receive healing. 
They're offered living water. They're commended for their faith. But by and large, when they break into the story, those are interruptions or pit stops on Jesus's larger journey. So Jesus in this statement is reaffirming that his focus is on Israel. We know, but the disciples don't, that they are the ones who will broaden that focus after Pentecost. There's so much they still don't know yet, and that's just part of it. But we have to recognize that even though Jesus reaffirms his own mission statement, he does not affirm the disciples in their desire to send the woman away. He doesn't respond to that question from them. So maybe the woman is encouraged that Jesus doesn't send her away. Or maybe she has decided in advance that she's going to be bold, no matter what it costs. So she kneels before Jesus, which is a posture of respect, and she pleads for his help. And then he says to her something that sounds really ugly and is like a harsh version of the mission statement he just said to his disciples. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Well, it's clear here, since he's just been talking about Israel as his mission, that his reference to the children is talking about the household of Israel. He's saying, it's not right for me to take what God has set aside for the household of Israel and toss it to the dogs. And here, we need to know, he's not calling her a dog because she's a woman. He's not calling her a dog directly. He is using the term dogs as a Gentile reference. That doesn't make it better. Like, it's still gross. (laughs) It still makes us feel uncomfortable for good reason. And it's still harsh and direct. And honestly, it's a statement of social prejudice, passing the lips of Jesus. But we have to imagine that as Jesus speaks this way, his Jewish followers are leaning in closer. They know how this story ends. They are feeling the rightness of their prejudice too. And then, in a single moment, everyone is taken aback. The woman doesn't miss a beat. Instead, she responds and says, yes, Lord. That seems to me like a statement recognizing and even accepting Jesus' own statement of his mission. Yes, Israel, these are your people. But she has more to say. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I can only imagine Jesus is amazed because he responds with a resounding, woman, you have great faith. And that's not just like a term that rolls off Jesus' tongue all the time, that whole great faith qualifier. In fact, that's not something he's ever been able to say about his own disciples. More often than not, he's pointing out their lack of faith and how little of it there is. But now he turns to this Canaanite, this Gentile woman, and says, you have great faith. And all of a sudden, Jesus' language has transformed. No longer is he showing us the expected social response of a Jew to a Gentile. Now we see an air of reversal, where Jesus is willing to praise this woman without restraint, to give her this designation that we do not see him give very often. And he elevates her. With his praise, he has transformed her in front of their eyes from a dirty sinner to a worthy exemplar. This woman is meant to be listened to. And on the heels of Jesus' praise, he assures the woman that her request has been granted. 
the healing and freedom she seeks for her daughter is reality. And as the scene closes, we have to imagine that the disciples and the other followers in the crowd are just a little bit shook, right? What seemed normal and natural and very much the way they would operate just a moment before is suddenly strange and supernatural. The power of God has been unleashed on behalf of this Gentile woman's daughter, and Jesus himself has turned the tables on these normal social prejudices? What's going on? All of a sudden, this is totally different than when it began. And in a major way, we find them unnerved, and we see the lesson intended for the original audience. This story is all about a challenge to prejudice. A long-held, deep-seated hostility and prejudice between the nation of Israel and Canaanite or Gentile people. And that's a lesson that still matters for us today. Maybe more than ever. Who's the group of people that we dismiss? That we decide is unworthy of our attention and Jesus' attention? We've got to ask ourselves that question when we look at this story. It challenges those attitudes. It says Jesus looks at the heart of a person, every person, any person. Do you? It's the first question in this passage. But the lesson does not end there. My friends, let us not forget that like the woman in the story, we too are Gentiles. We are those who have been grafted in to the family and the promise of Israel. We don't walk with God by ancestral heritage, but by growth in faith. Faith, the very thing this woman is said to have. And today she teaches us a powerful lesson about what it means to have faith. But to discover that lesson, I think we've got to ask a question first. What was so stunning and bold and trusting about what she said anyway? It doesn't really make sense to us when we just hear it, right? Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Well, I believe the most profound part of what she says centers on one single word, there. The dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Do you hear the claim of possession there? The master of the household is not just the master of the children. He's the master of her kind of people, too even those who get called something as terrible as dogs. And when Jesus likens her to a dog, she doesn't even take offense. Instead, it's as though she says, I may be a dog. I may be the kind of person that does not belong in the initial promise. I might be the kind of person who's in the hard, dark part of Israel's story. I may be a dog. But I am still a dog in the household of the master. I belong to him. He is mine. And not only does she realize and claim that she has a place with God, she also acknowledges she has a portion. She has provision from his hand. And that portion might just be crumbs. But she looks at it and she says, it's enough. This woman does not have great faith because she believes so much in the power of God that she pesters Jesus until she gets her way. No, we are told that she has great faith 
because her trust is in the master himself. She recognizes that he claims her, that he sees her, and that he is willing to provide enough for her need. Y'all, this Gentile woman has been paying attention. She knows that hard story that she's been part of on the wrong side of history, right? She knows that the God of Israel is recognized as providing day by day a portion of They both died, but the spirit is still with us, friends. <laughs> All right. So she knows that God provides manna for his people Israel, and she acknowledges that he is the God of enough. There's enough, even for her and her need, when it comes to this God. Man. It is a right view of God like this that enables us to have faith. Her view of God lines up with the history of Israel. She sees it better than they do. Her view of God lines up with what Jesus shows us about God's heart. And it's that right view that allows her to trust in his provision regardless of the circumstance. That's what we are called to. That's why she's our exemplar today. To learn how to walk in that kind of faith is what we're called to. And she reveals to us in her bold words that her hanging on to faith means she has to reject a couple of temptations. And those same temptations trip us up. They're our greatest hindrances to faith. So we're going to look at those really quickly today, too. The first is the temptation to try and arrange for ourselves or talk ourselves into a better place or portion. When Jesus addresses her, he acknowledges that she is in the lowest place of this household, and her portion is measly. It's just crumbs, right? But instead of being offended by that, she says, I have a place and a portion. That's enough. How often are we concerned with, instead of content with, the place we find ourselves or the portion that we feel like we receive from God? How often... Do we feel like if we could just get people to listen to us a little better, if we could just have a little bit more visibility and respect, we would be in the right place? How often are we tempted to go to God with a list of all the reasons that we have earned a greater portion than what we feel like we've received? That temptation is real. But as long as we are focused on how our efforts appear, or if we slip into a mindset of scarcity where we believe we need or deserve more, our gaze shifts and falls. No longer are we looking at the God of enough. And that's when we struggle to hold on to faith. So this woman shows us that what it takes to be able to hold on to that faith is to accept that when we come to Jesus, we have a place in the household of God and a portion. We have a place, we belong. We have a portion, that's enough. That's the beginning and the end. 
the whole of it. God is taking care of us. Just got to trust that. The second temptation the woman avoids is that of assuming that the way God's people are treating her is a reflection of the master himself. This one's hard. The woman has stepped into the middle of a Jewish audience. These are the chosen people of God. So they represent him in a real way, right? But the treatment that she gets from them is not hospitable in the least. So she could assume that the way that they're acting is how God feels about her too. But she knows better. She knows the master himself and that he is good, even when his people aren't. For some of us in this room today, church hurt has cast a shadow and caused incredible doubt in our relationship with God. It's really hard when we are wounded by people who claim to love God to be able to separate out our pain and God's culpability. It's easy for us to think that he's the one who's causing it. And those doubts and those feelings are valid. Those of us who've been hurt like this, in a real way, have some grieving work to do. Grieving what the family of God was meant to be and wasn't. And then, at some point, helped along by the gracious and compassionate hand of God himself, we've got some healing work to do. And the woman today shows us that healing is about seeing God rightly again. It's about being able to trust the goodness of his heart. It's a healing of our faith. Growing in that spiritual sight and trust may not be an easy road. And in fact, it probably won't be. But it is a journey that's worthwhile. And I hope you can hear this today. If you have been wounded by God's people, know that there is still a place for you. You belong with the master. And he offers you a portion that really is enough, even enough for the healing that you need. After all, it's healing that's provided in this story too, right? The young woman is trapped by her own demons, and she's healed. She's set free. It's her mother's great faith that leads to the healing of the daughter. And so we have to ask ourselves, is it great faith that leads to great miracles? And in the same breath, we might wonder, if we aren't seeing the provision we hope for, does that mean we need more faith? Well, I want to be clear about that today. No. We don't need more faith. Because faith is not some sort of cosmic balance where we've got to put enough in to get enough out. It's not some sort of manipulation trick on God's part. Instead, what we need when struggles in our life feels overwhelming is not more faith, but different faith than what a lot of us have been taught to have. The faith that we are called to hold and that the woman in this story demonstrates is faith not in the outcome of a miracle, but faith in the master. That it is the master, it is God our Father who sustains us. It is God who will provide enough. And friends, sometimes that enough really feels like abundance. It is far above and beyond what we asked for or what we could have imagined 
and it is an amazing provision. But sometimes God's enough comes portioned out one day at a time. And he sustains us, and he heals us, and he claims us step by step. That's still enough. It is faith that allows us to lean on God and trust his provision, no matter what it looks like, regardless of our circumstance. But let me also be clear that faith is not a matter of willpower. It's not about trying harder or white-knuckling it into having the right view of God. It tells us in Ephesians 2.8 that saving faith is a gift from God. Gift. You don't earn it. You don't make it happen. You receive it. It's a gift. And in Matthew 7.11, it tells us that God our Father willingly gives us good gifts. All we have to do is ask. So today, if you are struggling to see God for who he really is, if you are struggling to believe that he has enough for you, ask him for the good gift of faith and allow him to show you how he provides. Today, the main lesson and invitation stretched out to us through the Canaanite woman's story is to join her in the heart posture that belongs to great faith. And that is when we boil it all down, just trusting the master. Through her boldness, we are invited to recognize that we too have both a place and a portion in the household of our God. And because of who our God is, we can know that both that place and that portion are enough. So my friends, this week, let's rest in that truth. Let's rest in our belovedness, our belongingness, and God's enoughness. And if you aren't at rest, then will you seek and will you ask the good Father who gives good gifts to pour out on you the gift of faith that enables that rest and that trust? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.